Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Sauerkraut chocolate cake, ham banana rolls, Where did the crazy recipes of mid-20th century America come from, and why were they so popular? Today, writer Christina Ward tells us the story of how corporations successfully developed cookbooks to market their products. As food manufacturing really started taking off, you see these crazy recipes where you've got the corporate entity trying to use every single one of their brands in a single recipe. You know, peanut butter and banana and mayonnaise sandwiches and, you know, mayonnaise and jello molds. <laughs> First up today, it's my interview with Meathead Goldwyn, a barbecue master, here to set us straight on grilling's biggest myths. Hey, Meathead, welcome back to uh, Mill Street. Always good to talk to you, Chris. I just have this little problem calling you Meathead. I, I, I guess I, it's a moniker you invented, so I guess uh, I shouldn't worry. Uh, so I thought we'd go through uh, a few myths about grilling and barbecue, and you could uh, bust them for us. So let's start out with beer can chicken. Uh, I've spent years doing that recipe, trying to perfect it, and you say it's not a great idea. Well, it's, it is a great idea. It tastes wonderful. It's roast chicken. Who doesn't love roast chicken? But the beer and the can have nothing to do with it. You know, (laughs) you take a chicken out of the fridge, and it's 38 degrees Fahrenheit, and you stick it on a beer can, and what you've done is you've made a chicken koozie. You've (laughs) wrapped the beer in an ice-cold, three-and-a-half-pound wet protein and fat chicken koozie, and it's cold. And if you cook it properly, if you cook it up to 160, 165 degrees, that beer is never going to get any hotter than the chicken. 
It just can't. The liquid in the can just never steams. It looks so cool sitting there, and you get good crispy skin, but you've just made yourself a roast chicken with a beer can up its butt. <laughs> I, the reason we love having you on the show is you're just so expressive. <laughs> okay, moving on. So grill marks. Uh, I see people moving the steaks around, flipping them over, getting them crosshatched. Is that wrong? Well, there's nothing wrong with it, but, all right, anybody who loves food knows that there's this chemical reaction that occurs when heat hits protein and amino acids called the Maillard reaction. And the Maillard reaction is when things turn brown. And brown is beautiful. Brown is flavor. And what happens is, is inside an oven, and that's all a grill is, is it's an oven with a lousy thermostat or no thermostat, you put the steak on top of hot metal. Now, that metal is the same temperature as the air, but the metal retains and transmits more energy. And so it brands the meat on the surface. And so you get these hatches, these branding marks, which are Maillard reaction. They're flavor. They're wonderful. But in between the Maillard reaction marks, in between the branding, you've got these little diamond-shaped areas that are woefully tan, woefully gray. They're just unfulfilled potential, like a smart kid who never gets to school. Um, (laughs) You want that surface brown all over as much as you can. You want it edge-to-edge mahogany. You want as much Maillard as you can because crust is flavor. So, okay, so that makes sense in a cast-iron skillet, but if you're on the grill, what do you do? Ah, okay, well... I'm a huge fan of reverse sear, which I know you guys have done work with, where you gently warm the meat first, and you cook it on the inside. And then you crank up the heat and cook it on the outside. It's a two-step process, and cooking the inside and the outside separately is a really crucial concept, and it works for almost anything you'll cook on a grill. I even do baked potatoes with reverse sear. It just is absolutely perfectly sensible. You want crispy, crunchy outside and tender, soft, juicy insides. So you start by cooking gently, and you finish by cooking over direct flame. So you're going to take that steak, and you're going to put it right over the flame. Flip, 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 flip. Here's one we've talked about before, soaking your wood chips to make sure they don't burn off too quickly. Uh, You don't agree with that. You know, there's a reason they build boats out of wood. Wood doesn't absorb water. And if you cut open a wood chip or a wood block that's been soaking in water, there's no water on the inside. There's only a little water stuck to the surface of the wood, maybe in the pores, and it just evaporates the minute it gets the heat. And if you're cooking on a charcoal, when you throw wet wood onto charcoal, what's the first thing that happens? It knocks the temperature down. You lose total control over the fire. So ever since I started taking cooking classes in the early 70s, you know, check the doneness of meat by cutting inside and looking at the color. At least that's one kind of cheater method. You don't love that method. The only way to get properly cooked food, to get food that is safe, is with a digital thermometer. This is 2019. You can get a great digital thermometer that will give you precision temperature. If you've got one of those little dial thermometers in the kitchen drawer, take it out, put it in the driveway, and back over it with your car. (laughs) That's a typical meathead suggestion. I gotta (laughs) tell you. When when I die, on my tombstone, I'm gonna have the following written. Searing meat doesn't seal in the juices, because I've had this (laughs) argument a thousand times, even, even at Milk Street. So you obviously agree with me that searing has nothing to do with juiciness. Yeah, I mean, it, that, 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 this is one of those myths that just won't die. When you sear over high heat, you're drying out the surface. So in fact, you're losing moisture, not preserving moisture. Right. We have come to understand that when you step into the kitchen or on the deck for your grill, you're not just cooking, you're doing a physics and chemistry experiment. And physics and chemistry are what controls things. That's why this discussion about beer can chicken makes so much sense. It's simple physics. How can you get 
a beer to evaporate, to steam, when it, it's wrapped in a 160-degree chicken koozie. It just can't happen. It's against the laws of physics. Uh, you know, using the, the ideas that's, that, that chemistry and physics give us make us better cooks. Nerds for the kitchen. <laughs> Meathead, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Christopher, it's always great talking to you. Thank you for having me on. That was Meathead Goldwyn, barbecue whisperer and mythbuster of AmazingRibs.com, also author of Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. Right now, it's time to solve a few cooking mysteries with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. First, I have a question for you, Sarah. You know, people have asked me many times, what was the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me in a kitchen? So I'm going to ask you. So what was your most embarrassing moment in the kitchen? Uh, when I overcooked James Beard's rack of lamb three times. For James Beard? Yes. <laughs> uh, so he had to get an extra course because I couldn't seem to produce a perfect Now this was in his kitchen? No, this was at La Tulipe. Oh, La Tulipe. He was a frequent customer there. So you can imagine that the owner, Sally Dar, was not happy with me. I was so nervous. I threw three racks of lamb onto the broiler thinking one of them will come out right, and none of them did. So did you finally find another rack? I did, and Sally sent him an extra course, but I was so embarrassed. So that was a bad moment. But he he was very much a gentleman, Mr. Beard. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. was. Okay, time to take some calls. Yes. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Gail Kovacs from Strugsville, Ohio. Gail, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm getting older, but I do remember we spoke before something about a green sauce. Something you'd had in Frankfurt that you loved. And so, Gail, what happened yes. since we've talked to you? Well, what happened was I've had some communications with your studio, with Chris's wife, Melissa, who's kind enough to send me an alternate recipe for your Austrian green sauce. And then there was a gentleman from Germany who sent an email to your studio with the background on green sauce and the history of it. And I've had the chance to try both the green sauce recipe and the Austrian dill sauce and compare them. And it's been a wonderful journey. Is this herbs with sour cream? Is That's one category. And the other one Correct. I think that my wife Melissa was talking about, I think is more of a cooked like a bechamel-based or sauce. So which of those did you end up going with? Well, actually, I went with both of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was intrigued enough that I had to try them. So being that I live in northern Ohio, and our access to fresh herbs is somewhat limited, but I did find a farmer's market that had small quantities of things, and I also went online and researched substitutes for the things I couldn't find. So starting with the green sauce, I substituted dill for borage. I substituted arugula for sorrel, Mm -hmm. tarragon for burnet, and fennel for chervil. And I also used the other three ingredients, which were parsley, chives, and watercress. And because I didn't have a lot of herbs, I cut the recipe pretty much in half and used about seven grams for each of the herbs except the tarragon. I cut that back to three because it's a pretty strong herb. Um, And I was really glad I did that because when it was done, that herb taste was the one that was, to me, most recognizable. And it also came pretty close to our memory of what it tasted like. Nice. So I was really pleased with that result. And you also add, in addition to the creme fraiche or the sour cream, lemon juice, and some recipes say to add oil. I also, at the same time, made the Austrian dill sauce. And that one is predominantly a dill with onion, and it is a cooked sauce. So in comparing the two prep-wise, the green sauce had a lot of preparation for chopping of herbs and blending the herbs. And the dill sauce, the counterpart preparation was cooking it versus just mixing it. They were both excellent. I liked the green sauce better on the schnitzel than I did on the hard-boiled eggs, which is the other thing they serve it on. But I liked the dill sauce better on the eggs. So it was it was wonderful. Well, there you go. Gail, thank you so much for calling. I, yeah. I, I'm going to have to go try that green sauce. Yeah, sounds yummy. Well, thank you much for your help and for sending on the information and also for uh, asking me back because it's been, as I said, a wonderful experience. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be with you. Okay. Our pleasure. Take care. Right. Bye now. This is Milk Street Radio. 
If you have a cooking question, give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Linda. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good, thanks. And where are you calling from? Calling from out on the Palouse in northeastern Washington State. So how can we help you? Well, we have a family that avoids dairy, and sometimes baking and dessert making gets a little tricky. So I was looking for some help with two conversions. One, when I have a recipe that I like, carrot cake, apple cake, those kinds of fruit recipes. But they are for a layer cake, and I want to put them in a bunt pan. My solution, my cheater solution, I don't know if Sarah agrees, fill the pans uh, that the recipe calls for with water and then pour it into a bunt pan just to get a sense of volume measurement. That would give you a sense of volume. But when you get to baking, two nine-inch pans versus a bunt pan is a totally different animal. I would reduce the oven temperature for a deeper, thicker cake by like 25 degrees. And cook it longer. And cook it longer, right, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Is that helpful? Oh, that's or? great. That's so it cooks through. Right. Uh, that's an easy conversion. So the second conversion, when the recipe calls for buttermilk. Rice milk or soy milk, or I use almond milk sometimes, uh, will substitute in for milk in a cake pretty well. Um, buttermilk just has acid in it. It's tangy. So you just add a tablespoon of lemon juice, for example, uh, yeah. along with the rest of the liquid ingredients, and that should do it. You can just use almond milk, let's say, instead of buttermilk, but then you'd have to fool with your leavener. You have now a different pH in the batter. A recipe of buttermilk probably uses baking soda or baking soda and baking powder. Just convert it all to baking powder because baking powder includes an acid in the mix. But if you do add the acid, keep the baking soda. Right. Yeah, if you had a cup of buttermilk in a recipe, you could use a cup of almond milk or whatever, plus a tablespoon of lemon juice. That is great. The bun cakes, we like using those because they don't require so much frosting of the nine-inch pans. I mean, the other thing you should think about is just a loaf pan is a great way of doing a one-layer cake, which is smaller than a bun pan. One thing that's nice is when it comes out of the oven, punch holes in the top with a dowel or whatever, toothpick. Sugar syrup. And then a sugar syrup or... With lemon in it. Yes. Or lemon rind. Yes, that's great. Or both. Heat up some marmalade and brush that on the top. Do, just do a glaze. So you just do a simple glaze so it's not a big, thick frosting. It takes a couple minutes and you, you get what you want that way. Oh, this has become a whole new creature and I'm very excited. The idea of punching holes and putting a sugar syrup, yeah. it just sounds wonderful. Basically, I, I don't do layer cakes with frosting except to birthdays now. And mm-hmm. you can change the flavor. Uh, you can use almond flour in the pound cake or the bun, the loaf pan. You can use all sorts of flavors, right, Sarah, on top. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's, you can make 500 different recipes using just a basic concept. Well, good. Go have all right. fun. Yeah. Okay. Get started. Wow, this is great. I can okay. hardly wait now. Okay. Well, Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank Take you care. so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You know, it's funny. There's cake people and there's frosting people, and I think rarely are you both. Are you a cake person or a frosting person? I admit I like a good frosting. I don't like buttercream very much. No, too like, buttery. Like a Swiss buttercream, which has the egg whites in it, too. Yeah. That's okay. Because it's lighter. Yeah, but a good, a really good chocolate frosting, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Christina Ward about the history of food and advertising. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. 
And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Mid-20th century saw the rise of absurd recipes, such as ham banana rolls with cheese sauce, and equally absurd cookbooks, such as 1941's Bananas, How to Serve Them. But where do these recipes and cookbooks come from? To help us understand our culinary history, today I'm chatting with Christina Ward. She's author of American Advertising Cookbooks, How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jello. It explores how food companies created recipes and cookbooks to sell their products. That story begins in many ways with Edward Bernays. He's the man who helped invent modern marketing. Christina, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, So, (laughs) to summarize 100 years of selling, till about 1900 or World War I, products were sold based on their descriptions and characteristics, but then all of that started to change. And there was a guy called Edward Bernays. Who was Edward Bernays, and how did he change how products were sold? Edward Bernays is a fascinating character in American history. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And Edward actually went 
and studied the psychoanalytic techniques with his uncle Sigmund and then came back to the United States and turned some of those skills towards the advertising industry. And one of his first clients where he was able to test out some of those theories about human behavior was with the cigarette industry. And the idea at that time was that a large portion of the population smoked, but women did not smoke. It was considered dirty and filthy, and so Bernays was charged with getting more smokers. And he did that by not just saying cigarettes are good, but selling the idea of what cigarettes could do, recruiting actresses at the time to start smoking and pose with cigarettes, to then recruit doctors to talk about how cigarettes would help women remain thin. And all of a sudden, within a very two to three years, women were smoking by just the increase was exponential. Yeah, I think his basic concept that he's fascinating was that you you sell a product based upon how it would make you feel. When we get to some of the food products, I think it's a similar story, right? It, it is a similar story, and he caught th- that lightning in a bottle that created modern American advertising, which was this idea of an aspirational concept. So right. this idea that if you could marry a want or a desire to a physical, tangible product that you could buy and put those two things together, the sales would happen. So let's talk about a kind of a difficult topic, Aunt Jemima. Uh, There's an interesting story there, an interesting person behind that, uh, Nancy Green. Who, Who was Nancy Green? Nancy Green was an actual person, and that's where some of these ideas of actual people as iconic mascots for brands can become, as you said, very complicated. The brand and the drawing of that kind of early Mammy character was in place before they hired Nancy Green to portray her essentially at the Chicago World's Fair. And so she, as a person, Nancy Green got wrapped up into becoming this character and essentially uh, became, during her lifetime, Aunt Jemima. And so it, it was fraught with those racist connotations that were prevalent in a lot of the radio programming at the time and, and early movies. You know, I, I was at the headquarters uh, with Betty Crocker, and they had all the uh, portraits on the wall. There was about 12 of them. And every decade, they would change. You know, she, she morphed over time. I, I think they told me that 5,000 letters a day used to come in for Betty Crocker, and they all believed she was real. Betty Crocker is the one that remains today, but uh, most of the major companies had essentially, like Sue Swanson, a spokesperson. They took that model that Nancy Green made of this expert and then, you know, used it for their brands. And it, it was also the convergence of that idea of expertise. It's the rise of the home economics movement. And so as the companies created the models of an expert for their brands, that's where they generated all these uh, cookbooks. And folks really relied on these experts for information as to how to cook the new modern foods that were coming along in their supermarkets. Tell us a little bit about food councils and the sort of the business of promoting recipes that use ingredients. That actually goes back to Edward Bernays, who uh, started with the food councils when his work took him from cigarettes to working for United Fruit for bananas. And then you've got these studies that United Fruit would fund studies or look for studies that would prove something about bananas. There's a great story from John Hopkins about celiac disease before it was understood as celiac disease is the famous banana diet. And that's where you get some of these campaigns where the eat a banana every day, drink orange juice every morning, eat an apple a day. Those are all based on the food councils, which were essentially an advocacy group that was founded by these actual growers and packers and manufacturers. Now, wait a minute. I, I thought an apple a day, I've believed that my whole life, and I still do. Was that, now you're telling me that was just some some marketing claptrap from a food council, really? It is a marketing claptrap. Oh, is nothing sacred. Nothing anymore. is sacred. Um, but, but at the same time, these food councils and other people were turning out really horrendous recipes. My, one of my favorite was the ham and banana roll, uh, first appearing in 1941, in the edition, 1940 edition of Bananas, How to Serve Them, <laughs> which I love as a cookbook. Spread each slice of ham slightly with mustard. Wrap a slice of the prepared ham around each banana. Place into a buttered shallow baking pan. Pour cheese sauce over the banana. Bake in a moderate oven, etc. So what you're getting at the end of the day is pretty horrific. Well, it is, but it also has this like great recipe history that that same recipe 
morphs by 1974 into something they call Bananas Honduras, which is, you know, more plantains with right. a lighter sauce, not cheese sauce, and pork, which is something more tropical, native to the Caribbean islands. And so they would work to look at things that were historic recipes or regional recipes, and then how to make them more palatable to the American tastes, as well as nutritionally valuable. And that's part of the thing. So bananas and how to eat them, which shows you how rare a banana was from the common diet. You know, if you look in the pictures of that 1941 cookbook, there's instructions on how to peel the thing, essentially telling people, do not eat the peel. (laughs) (laughs) They always gave it a scientific overlay. And and then everyone had a cookbook. So things got kind of crazy by the mid-20th century. It it did. We have this idea that giant conglomerate corporations is somewhat of a, you know, recent phenomenon, but it wasn't. Food manufacturing really started taking off. And that's where you see these, like, you know, by the 50s, mid-century, these crazy recipes where you've got the corporate entity trying to use every single one of their brands in a single recipe. You know, peanut butter and banana and mayonnaise sandwiches and, you know, mayonnaise and jello molds. And that's where those originated with that mandate in, from the, the marketing overlords and saying, use everything. <laughs> Some of these recipes in these silly little booklets actually survive. The sauerkraut chocolate cake is, is still with us, I think, to some extent, right? It, it is. I made one Friday night. Um, <laughs> if you're looking at some of the food science behind it, it works. The sourness in the sauerkraut helps activate the leavening. And much like a carrot cake or a zucchini bread, the cabbage itself just adds like density and moisture. And so what you've got is actually a pretty good chocolate cake. So I, I've asked a lot of people about this, and I've I've thought about it myself, but how do we go from, excuse the expression, locavores, because everything was consumed at one time from a very small radius around where you lived, to getting hooked on jello and soda pop chicken, for example, using Dr. Pepper. Was this all Edward Bernays at work that is the power of marketing and, and marketing dollars, or was there something else going on? I mean, that is a critical element to it, but I think there's something almost more primal that drove people, which is, is when you think about post-World War One and then going 20s into the Depression, we are really not that far from starvation. And as the technology grew about canning and food preservation and then growing on a large scale, people were very excited about that idea of stability, about having a food that would last so what's still with us uh, is that Edward Bernays is still with us because selling products based on the psychology of those products is very much part of the 21st century. But w- what else has, remains? Anything from this time? Um, I think the larger concepts remain. A lot of the modern food processing and you know processed foods that we eat have a lot of odd ingredients in them. And so there's a bit of a blowback against that, but that's still with us because even if we're thinking about, say, those meal delivery kits, which our children and you know, a couple generations they're going to laugh at, are still filled with preservatives. They're just packaged differently. And so I think that's what is going to remain. The idea of convenience, idea of food stability, and, um, you know, appealing to our aspirational sense. Those are the things that are always going to stay with us in food marketing. So name something. You just name something that you don't think will last, food meal kits. Uh, w- w- what food trend or economic trend in food do you think will last? Junk food. That'll always stay with us because our brains just love that combination of sweet and salty and hot and fat. Okay. You're going to go head to head with Mark Pittman right now. I just interviewed him recently and He said that if you go out and tell people about where our food comes from and the lack of sustainability, we can change people's habits. In the other corner, we have Christina Ward, who's saying, eh, I don't know, people love junk food. I I get to disagree with Mark Bateman a bit, but I'm from the working class Midwest, and I think sometimes that disconnect um, happens between what people want, what we think we want, and what we actually have and what we do. I do volunteer work in neighborhoods where people really are worried about where their next meal is coming from, where they have a dollar a day to spend on food. And that dollar a day is maximized by junk food, 
by, and which actually, it's funny, it goes back to the very early cooking schools where if you do the analysis on some of the early recipes, they were thought that all green vegetables were devoid of any nutritional value and must be covered with like a white sauce. And so we're still there. We are still there. And again, the unintended consequences are that there's a lot of people who don't have the luxury of looking at local and fresh foods and are looking to maximize their calorie value for the day for their very limited food budget. For all of the 20th century and all the silly foods, was there one particular recipe or fast food or junk food product that really stands out for you? Um, I think what really comes to mind is the potato chip tuna fish casserole. Again, I'm from the industrial working class Midwest, um, lots of Catholic. And so where you've got Fridays meant no meat whatsoever. So, you know, you got to have fish on Friday and just the torment of that potato chip casserole. Everybody's got variations on it, but it's usually, I can, the recipe is so simple. It's terrible. Uh, a can of tuna fish, a can of peas, a can of cream of mushroom soup, and then you crunch up a bag of potato chips on top. (laughs) Well, isn't that terrible? Well, then you know of what you speak. That's good. Christina Ward, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for joining us at Milk Street. Thanks for having me. It's been so much fun to talk about these bad food recipes. That was Christina Ward, author of American Advertising Cookbooks, How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jello. You know, my question is simple. How did food companies sell Americans on jellied cucumber salad, apple fandango, which had peanut butter and mayonnaise in it, and soda pop chicken that called for Dr. Pepper? Well, as a nation of immigrants, you might say that we've left our culinary roots far behind. But perhaps the real answer may have to do with prosperity. The Industrial Revolution made long hours in the factory a central aspect of American life. The power of modern marketing then sold us on convenience, liberating us from hours at the stove. So cooking was no longer the foundation of our culture. It was promoted by food companies as an inconvenience. Perhaps now we do know better. Making a living is not making a life. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, garlic rosemary burgers with telegio sauce. Lynn, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, once in a while, you come across a recipe in a cookbook that's so simple, you just have to rush home to make it. And that's true of a recipe from a guy called Ignacio Matos. His cookbook is called Estella. And he has a recipe for a sauce, a cheese sauce that he puts on a steak. It's heavy cream and telegio. That's it. Heavy cream and pleasure. No bechamel, no flour, butter, etc. It was so simple and it was delicious. So we decided maybe we would take that concept and apply it to something else. That's right. It seems like the perfect combination with a burger. So that's how we're going to do it here. It's sort of like grown-up cheese whiz. That's a good way of saying it. Not, not very romantic, <laughs> but it's true. So Telegio is an Italian cheese. It's great for this because it has a ton of flavor, but it's a soft cheese, so it really does melt very well. So like you said, super simple. Uh, we heat up some cream. We add cubes of Telegio, take it off the heat, cover it, and just let it sit there, and the cheese melts from the residual heat of the pot. So that's it? It's a burger with a great cheese sauce? Actually, no. Ignacio bases his steak with fish sauce when he makes it, and so we kind of like the idea of that for our burger. So what we did instead was use Worcestershire sauce, which has some similar flavor profiles to fish sauce in that it has a lot of salt, has that umami that you love. And we made a little bit of a basting sauce with that with garlic and rosemary. Some of that goes in with the burger. The rest gets kind of brushed on as we cook it. Uh, It's done in a cast iron skillet. Okay, so from here on in, it's just business as usual, cheap supermarket bun? No, actually, you want to use a sturdier bun here. Uh, Usually we like a potato roll with a burger, but in this case, we want a Kaiser roll or a brioche roll, something a little bit hearty. And assembly is really important here. You want to put the sauce on the bun rather than put it on the burger. If you put it on the burger, it just slides right off. So both sides of the bun get Mm. the sauce. You put the burger in the middle, and it's... Cheese Whiz for grown-ups. I have to say, this is the best burger I ever ate. It's delicious. So thanks to Ignacio Matos, we have the garlic rosemary burgers with telegio sauce. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. 
You can get this recipe for garlic rosemary burgers with Telegio sauce at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, Alex I News teaches us about the Japanese art of kintsugi. We'll be right back. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, Sarah Moult and I will be taking more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Judy calling from Princeton. How are you? I'm good. What's your question today? I have a question regarding stocks and bone broths. And I do have better than bouillon in the refrigerator. Well, I was going to say, now we're done. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> what I use. I love that stuff. Stop there. Yeah, stop there. But okay, we'll keep going. As you say, it's a it's a wonderful product. But I do continue to torment myself making, you know, bone broths and stocks on those rainy Sunday afternoons. So I came across a technique of roasting bones. And I wondered if you had any, you know, comments on the, the technique, the science behind it, because I've not seen that recommendation to roast bones. If you want deep flavor, you brown the bones. Right. Um, you get a much deeper flavor, much deeper color. So, yeah, I would absolutely brown the bones. Oh, and okay. I do it in the oven is the easiest because they brown more evenly. If you do it in a skillet, the heat source, you can't control it as well as you can in an oven. Would you use a moderate, uh, moderately hot oven? I usually do 400. I was going to say 400. Okay. I mean, it's, I, I hate saying Maillard reaction because I've said it too many times. But this, oh, go for there it. are hundreds of chemical interactions that happen with meat, protein, and heat, and you're just developing a lot of flavor compounds. That's all. It's, it's like sautéing 
or cooking a steak is the same thing. I also brown the onions and the carrots. If you're going to add the vegetables, brown them too. Why not? The two that have sugar in them. But also it's very important to get up all the stuff that's in the bottom of the roasting pan so absolutely deglaze. Or buy a small jar of better than bouillon, which... <laughs> No, I mean, look. Oh, Chris, I'm horrified. No, no. First of all, with chicken stock, I just use wings. Buy a bunch of wings and put them in water and make stock. But you're right. For beef, roasting the bones probably is important. Sometimes I also make a brown chicken stock. And my choice is always wings because they've got the best combo of fat, meat, and bones. I usually cut them in half, brown them same way, and then add onion and carrot and brown them and then deglaze the pan same way. And you'll end up with something that really is very dark and rich and yummy, and you don't have to cook it as long as the beef stock. And then it gets better. What you can do, maybe I'm getting close to better than bouillon right now, <laughs> is you take that liquid, whether it be your beef stock or your chicken stock or, you know, what you know when you're done, and you right. boil it down till it gets thick and syrupy. Do I hear the term demi-gloss coming? Well, no, gloss. Oh, gloss, just gloss. Which means glaze. Yeah. Right. Brown chicken stock is fantastic. Also, I always add both to beef stock and to chicken stock browned tomato paste. And I brown that as well. This reminds me of a marathon. I admire people who can run 26 miles and have the guts and the fortitude to train for it. Right. But I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So, look, from a culinary point of view, you don't really need to do it. You can do pretty well without it. But if you like it on a rainy afternoon, fine. It makes so, the house smell wonderful. Good for you, and it's nice that someone's still doing it. Yes, I agree. Now there are two of you. Yes, <laughs> there's just two of us on the planet, right? Judith and Perfect. Sarah. Yes. Okay. As always, thank you for your help, okay. and, and nice to know I'm not alone. No, you're not no, alone. you're not. <laughs> yeah, okay. There are two of you. All right. Take care, Take and care. thank you. Bye. Okay, Judy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Michelle Lanou in Houston. How can we help you? Well, I have a real challenge when it comes to any recipe that calls for zesting. It's become a nightmare for me. And every recipe that sounds really wonderful, particularly the ones on Milk Street, whenever I go to look at it and it's got the word zest in mm. it, I just put it away because I'm so frightened. I don't blame you. It is, you know, there are a few things I have to say. We had this discussion at Milk Street recently like the six annoying things that are rusty, like grating garlic. I'm never doing that. Zesting. Yeah, who does that? Well, no, I, you know, besides Excuse me, you, that's your magazine that says I know. Well, I, I live in a, you know, a social democracy uh -huh. here. So do you use a microplane zester? You're using, what are you using? Grater? Well, I've gone and bought a special tool that has a little zester thing on the end of it to do it. I've that mean a little holes, you mean? But everything ends up in the grater and never in the spoon. Have you tried so. the microplane zesters? They're just a very thin, long, like eight-inch long grater with a handle. Have you tried those? No. That'll Those solve your problem. Because you're right. The stand-up grater, it'll get all caught in the well, grater. Well, and it, you will end up wounding yourself. Yes. You know, a little bit of yeah. you will go into the dish. Those are dangerous. The microplane zester grater has been around for 15, 20 years. It's just got a handle, and it's just a long piece of metal. And you can't hurt yourself. And, and you, just, uh, you can do a lot of grating fast. Yeah, it comes right out. Yeah. But, you know, I have one I like even more that's specifically for zest. It's called the Kitchen IQ Better Zester. And they're only about 15 bucks, And they're specifically made for uh, citrus. They come with a little holder underneath that you can slide oh, off. Oh, I've tried this. So it catches the zest. And it's one of my favorite tools because I love zest. And I'd hate for you to give it up, Michelle. It just adds wonderful flavor to dishes. May I suggest, though, there's another choice. Yes. Which is just use more lemon juice because most of these recipes I, – I know, I know. It's different. But that's I get, acid. I, I, I mean, I love acid. Or but. use a little bit of lemon extract, which I know is – Ew. Well, okay. I'm just saying Ew. if she doesn't want to do any of this – No, no, she does. She just some needs more the juice. right tool. Microplane zester or kitchen IQ, right? Yes. Okay. Better zester. There yep. we go. There you go. I'm on it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Michelle, thank you for calling. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you do have a question, culinary or otherwise, please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Alice. Hi, Alice. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. How Great. can we help you? 
Well, I've come across a recipe, and it was for a lemon sheet cake. And it calls for self-rising flour. And I'm wondering if there is an acceptable alternative. I know the self-rising has salt and leavening agents in it, mm-hmm. but I understand it's also a softer wheat with a lower gluten content. So I'm afraid if I was just to make some substitution, the cake might come out a little too tough. Well, you're 100% correct. It depends on the brand. If you're dealing with... I'm using... I use King Arthur. Well, King Arthur is going to be about 12% protein content. And okay. if you use Pillsbury or Gold Medal, it'll be closer to 10 to 11. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted the softer flour that is lower protein, use Pillsbury or Gold Medal, and that will probably be pretty close to a self-rising flour. Okay. Well, in terms of gluten content, but you'd still have to, you know, add the leavening. Right. I think it's one cup flour. For every cup of flour, you need one and a quarter teaspoons of baking powder and about a quarter teaspoon of salt. I mean, the other thing you could do if it's a cake, I would just use cake flour and add the... Leavening. Leavening. I mean, cake flour would, as as the name implies, is probably good for a sheet cake. And you would use the same proportion of one and a quarter Mm -hmm. um, teaspoons of the baking powder? Yeah, you know, I've never... I don't think I've ever made the substitution myself, so I, I know that's what's published. I would guess mm-hmm. it's in the ballpark. Yeah. Okay, because this particular recipe calls for two teaspoons of baking powder as well. Wow. And this is just mm. a sheet cake? Yes. Where is this recipe from? Mary Berry, yes. It's a British cookbook. But but is it, it, is it a new book or an old book? Maybe 2015, 2012, nothing much earlier than that. And then once you make, the, and, you make and, the sheet cake and then you just put a topping on it, like strawberries and whipped cream or something? What they do is they, there's some lemon zest in the cake uh-huh. and it's like a lemon drizzle on the top right. of it when right. it's cold. That sounds like too Why, much leavener. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Plus four eggs. So you're already getting right. leavening from them. I mean, Chris, what do you think? Just maybe How use, much flour is used in this recipe? Two cups? Three cups? It's, well, it's a gram. It's 275 grams. So I guess that's about... Two cups, over two cups, two plus cups. Yes, right. because uh, 465 grams is a pound, and it's about... Right, it's about 130, I four think. Four cups in a pound. Says per yeah. cup. Yeah. yeah, that's about right. Then you'd have over three teaspoons of baking powder, that, or a tablespoon. Yeah. Sounds like a little much. Yeah. I'd add the, the one and a quarter, so round it up to two. Make it two teaspoons. I think that With should do flour. it. With Two cups of cake flour, and I'd add two teaspoons of baking, baking powder, powder. And, okay. a, and a full teaspoon of salt, probably. Okay. And then you've I'll got the that. eggs. Yeah. yeah. The eggs are just beaten whole like a regular cake, yellow cake, right? Anyway, I think that should work. Yeah. Give that a shot. All right. So. Thank you. Okay. okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Jet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now for something completely new, we're inviting you, our listeners, to share your culinary wisdom with us. Every week, we'll play a new tip from one of our listeners on the air. Here's our first one. My name is Cheyenne Baird, and here is my tip. I often have a tube of anchovy paste on hand in the kitchen. I like to basically add it to a skillet or Dutch oven with a little bit of olive oil, some minced garlic, and maybe some chili flakes or another type of spice to add something savory to stews, uh, especially anything like a root vegetable stew. Um, I found out about the paste because I was making pasta alla norma and I didn't really feel like getting my cutting board all oily by cutting up anchovies so I got a little bit lazy and I bought the paste and realized it tasted really great and um, haven't looked back so it was born out of laziness but ended up tasting really good. If you'd like to share your own culinary tips on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, that's 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's our resident Parisian, Alex Inews. Alex, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, what insane project have you been working on lately? <laughs> Nothing insane today, I promise. Uh, today I want to share with you a story. I broke my favorite bowl. 
I had this beautiful, you know, small ceramic bowl and inadvertently I, I, I broke it. And, and I'm sad because of this. That is the beginning of my story. It's not going to stay sad all along, I promise. It's going to evolve, of course. Um, I don't know about you, Christopher, but I tend not to trash things too much. I, I don't like seeing things as disposable. No, I, I agree. In fact, the older I am, and I'm older than you, in my kitchen, I have fewer things, but things I keep a longer time. That's true. Yes, I, I, li I like this philosophy. And, and I like the fact that those tools, they're helping me in my journey. And I try to give them back somehow. So I basically went on Google and, and tried to, you know, I, I type in how to fix uh, broken ceramics, for example. In the image section on Google, I saw this beautiful bowl and, and it was basically lined with, with gold. And I thought, is, is this a way to fix a bowl? Does that exist? And yes, the, an the answer is yes. Uh, it comes from a Japanese technique and it's called Kintsugi. So have you ever heard of this, Christopher? Ah, uh, it's new. It's a new one on me. No, I never heard of it. So Kin stands for gold and Tsugi stands for repair. So repair with gold. So there's a legend around it. And the legend is this. So the eighth shogun of the Ashika, Ashikaga shogunate in Japan, uh, named Ashikaga Yoshisama, had a lovely little tea bowl. And he basically inadvertently uh, broke that tea bowl. So because he's the shogun, I guess, he um, asked his craftsmen all, all across the country to try and find a better method to fix his lovely bowl. And they found this, you know, super smart combination of using a lacquer plus gold dust to put back together his beautiful tea bowl. Instead of just buying a new tea bowl, he enjoyed getting his tea bowl back. He enjoyed embedding the story of the tea bowl in itself. That's beautiful. It's elevating. It's inspiring to me. And that's the thing I try to learn myself. So I thought I loved my tea bowl as well. Uh, so, so I tried the traditional method to fix it. So I, I bought some lacquer. I bought some gold dust. And, and, and I basically, you know, walked my way into this. There, there are plenty of tutorials online. So it's doable. It's not impossible. In fact, I'm applying this philosophy to plenty objects in my studio. Because from what I learned from a ceramicist, uh, fr from a ceramicist artist uh, that I met, a, Jap a Japanese one, um, she told me Kintsugi is not only limited to ceramics. You can fix many things with Kintsugi. So I fixed my kettle. I fixed um, a skillet. A cast iron skillet. Really? Not with the yes, yes, yes. I did not with the exact same technique because it, it it wouldn't be as strong as with the ceramic thing. But I applied the same philosophy with this. I I, I just refused to to trash them, uh, to dispose of them. I I just accepted the fact that now they are broken, but but I fixed them so they have scars that tells me a lot uh, about my relationship with them, about what those guys have been through. Well, it sounds like we need to do the same thing with our friends and family, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know? I, I, I think that's mandatory. Despite all the scars and history, they're more valuable because of the history, right? Yeah, I love this very much. It's about acceptance, I guess. It's about seeing beauty in what things are instead of what we want them to be. Alex, you're the only person I know who can start with a broken teacup and get to a philosophy of life. Thank you so much. And uh, by the way, you, how was the teacup? Did you get it? It was perfectly fixed? or Yes, it was imperfectly fixed. So perfectly fixed, That's... I think. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. Uh, broken things are beautiful and excellent philosophy. Thank you so much. That was Alex Inews, host of Alex French Guy Cooking on YouTube. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Earlier in the show, I spoke with Meathead Goldwyn, who pointed out that most of what we believe about barbecue and grilling is, in fact, wrong. For years, I've said that beer can chicken flavors the meat and that soaking wood chips produces smokier foods, and I was wrong. The actress Glenda Jackson once said that the older she gets, the more nervous she is about going on stage. 
Now, that's because she knows how much more there is to know. Well, me too. The more I learn, the less I seem to know. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubub Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.